All right. Well, we are uh, still in Hebrews. We've moved forward a little bit. We're in chapter 12, and today we're going to start in verse 12. But I want to just remind us, because this whole chapter really fits together pretty tightly, and I want to look at this phrase in verse 1 to begin. Uh, The writer says, again, remember after Hebrews 11, where he Uh, really amplifies this hall of faith, these Old Testament believers that were really faithful to God. He says, in light of that, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, the race of the Christian life is all of life for the Christian, right? It's not a segment of life. It's not just a little something we do once in a while, maybe on a Sunday or, gosh, you know, maybe a little extra in a small group or a ministry team. It's all of life. A person enters this race at the moment of their conversion when they entrust their life to Christ for the forgiveness of their sin. Um, The starting pistol shoots right there, and they start the race, and they run or not. And that's the big decision for every Christian, every moment of every day is how will we run the race? We're in it. If you trust in Christ, you're in it. So how are you going to run going forward for the rest of your days till you take your last breath? That is what the writer today is going to help us understand. We learned last week that the demands of running, this metaphorical race, um, represent the discipline of our Lord. The race is hard. Uh, Specifically in verse 11, it says discipline, the demands of running the race, is painful Not pleasant, but promising. It's painful, not pleasant, but full of promise. And as I thought about that, I wondered why the writer said painful and not pleasant, as if we might not understand what painful means. (laughs) But it's, it's to say it is painful, and the not pleasant part is like that's what we wish it would be, right? So now, I don't know when the last time was that you exerted yourself in any kind of significant way. But when you did, who in here would say it was really comfortable? Kind of a sense of relief just washed over me. No, your heart rate rises, right? Your breathing becomes labored. You might feel a strain or or so somewhere in a muscle somewhere. Joints might ache a little bit. It's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's certainly not pleasant. But there is almost nothing in your life that is better for you physically than exertion. We were made to move. And when we do that, it's good for us. It's very good for us, despite how uncomfortable we may be in the process The promise of discipline, this spiritual discipline that the metaphor is representing, the promise is it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And isn't that something that we all want? 
We, we may not even understand fully what all that represents, but man, that sounds great, doesn't it? At its core, this phrase represents the unity that we can experience with God and with people, particularly in the body of Christ. Unity, remember that's what Jesus prayed for in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? That we would be one just as he and the Father and the Spirit are one. This discipline, this demand of running the race that is painful, that actually brings about this unity. It cultivates this unity that is afforded us in Christ. Sin divides, righteousness unites. Discipline prunes away the unrighteous stuff, right, that keeps us at odds with each other and with the Lord. And it produces the righteous stuff in us that causes all of our relationships to flourish. So with that in mind, the writer says, therefore, verse 12, in parentheses, don't fade under the refining fire of discipline. Don't wilt under that. Don't, don't give in. Instead, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. I, I sort of put this verse 12 together in the phrase, dig deep. Dig deep. Now, you'll probably remember a few weeks ago, I said that the Christian life and staying faithful to it isn't being tough. There's nothing about toughness here. What, what digging deep means is actually digging as deep as you can into the resources that only God can supply. So you're not digging deep into your own resources. That, that's a failure. You'll, you'll never get to the, to the end of the race in a good form that way. You, you have to dig deeply into the resources that only God can provide. And the three that are most prominent are God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. You guys may be tired of hearing that, but we will say it again and again and again. That is what God gave you to run well. God's Word, God's Spirit, and God's people. So back to the picture that the writer is giving us. You, you can envision this. Think about at the end of a marathon and uh, maybe a mile from the finish line and you see a runner with hands down and knees buckling and feet wandering. It's a rough sight, isn't it? And you begin to wonder, are they going to get there? I remember watching a cross-country race years ago with a buddy of mine up in Indianapolis. And, I mean, these, these runners are, it, it's like full on. They were running 530 miles, 5 minute and 30 second miles over terrain, rocks and roots and everything else. And I do remember seeing a runner literally 30 yards from the finish line. And falls down and is crawling on hands and feet to get to the finish line. That's the picture. It's literally coming to this place where you are 
just coming apart. The deal, though, is because this is a spiritual reality, is this isn't fatigue. This isn't just being worn out. This is a flawed frame of mind. It's a perspective that has gone astray. It's thoughts like, I deserve better than what I've got right now. God must not really love me. I just don't even think this is worth it. It's those kinds of thoughts that, that would be tied to hands down, knees buckling, and feet straying. It's getting off track. And that kind of mindset endangers, according to the writer, what is lame. Now, there's an interesting transition that happens here. In the first 11 verses, there was probably more of an individual or a personal focus. But now he's actually shifting over to a community focus, maybe even more so than an individual. Certainly, there's individual application, and we're going to look at that. But the idea here is that if you're not digging deep into the resources of God, if you are entertaining those ideas that represent a flawed mindset, then you actually don't just endanger yourself, you endanger the people around you because you're in a community of faith and there's other people walking alongside with you. And when they see you fading and doing nothing about it, it really begins to strain their faith. Now, you and I are not responsible for one another's faith. Like, I can't believe for you. But I can certainly do some things that will either encourage or discourage your faith, right? And you mine. So the idea here is we need to pay attention to our thoughts and then our related behavior, certainly for our own good, but for the good of the body. The idea actually comes out of Proverbs 4, 26 and 27. Solomon says, ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. Rather than succumbing to the heat of discipline, the resistance that we face in everyday life, resistance that God uses to produce the peaceful fruit of righteousness, rather than wilting underneath that, we need to surrender to the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. Let God do his work in you even when it is painful, not pleasant. Let it happen. Invite it. Embrace it. And let God do a good work in you. And, and the beautiful thing is that work will certainly be good for you, but it will be good for everybody around you that is watching you run the race. So first of all, run the race with endurance, which means digging deep into the resources of God's sufficiency. And then secondly, as one who has been graciously sustained, God makes his resources available to us. 
The second thing the writer would say is love well. Verse 14, love well. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We could paraphrase verse 14 as strive for harmony and holiness. Strive for harmony and holiness. Now, it was helpful for me to interpret this verse in light of the description of the two great commandments. You guys remember the scene where uh, one of the religious leaders comes to Jesus and he's testing him. Hey, tell us, what are the greatest commandments? And here's what Jesus said, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So let's take that and incorporate it into verse 14. Strive for peace with everyone. Parentheses. Love your neighbor as yourself. Then strive for holiness. Love the Lord your God with all that you are. Both of these are commands. They're not optional. God didn't say if you feel like it or if it makes sense to you. He's like, this is what I want you to do as my, as my child. I want you to strive for peace with everyone. And I want you to strive for holiness. And the first thing that ought to come to our minds when we see those commands is how difficult perhaps impossible they are without his resources. We would see that and go, I, I mean, I get along great with people that are just like me, that think like me, that we got chemistry, right? I do that great. Where it gets hard is when I'm at odds with somebody, when somebody is offensive or irritating or just disagreeable. That's when it gets hard. But I'm called to strive to live in peace with that person. And then not only that, I'm, I'm supposed to be striving after this thing called holiness. And there's a condition attached to that, that without that, I, I'm not going to get to see the Lord. That sounds pretty serious. Let me put these two together because harmony and holiness could be seen as competing aims, right? Think about it. If, if I'm pursuing to live in peace with people, um, it's hard to hold tightly to my convictions because that could rub somebody the wrong way. Also, if I really do stick to my convictions and I really do strive after holiness, that can be kind of hard for some of the people around me. It can make them uncomfortable it can make our relationship kind of strained. But we're not called to pick between the two. He said to do both. To strive to live at peace with all people and to strive for holiness. Now, holiness here, as I just said, is stated as a condition for seeing the Lord. And the command suggests that we're to strive for holiness so that we can see the Lord. Now, how do we achieve holiness with God? 
Is it a performance thing? Do you do enough good so that God therefore says you're holy now? You finally met the standard? No, we achieve holiness by grace through faith. God makes us holy. And the trigger for that is we trust in him. We finally come to the end of ourselves and we say, you know what? I can't do this. I can't do anything in my life to make myself acceptable to you. I need you to do for me what I can't do for myself. And in that moment, when we cry out to God in that way, guess what he does? He makes us holy. He covers us with the blood of Christ, and it looks as if we have never sinned and as if we've always done what is right. Isn't that amazing? That's the good news of the gospel. But apparently, after we come to Christ, it's not just all done. It's done from an eternal perspective, but then we get to live that out day in and day out. We are to strive after that holiness that God has already declared over us from an eternal perspective. We're to strive after that day in and day out. Now, how do you think that we do that? Well, we do what God tells us to do, obedience. Obedience is the means of experiencing the spiritual reality that God has made true of us. That, that's how we experience fellowship, unity with the Lord in the here and now. So we're to strive after unity in both of those places. I, I, I say it this way. It means keep surrendering, surrendering your life to the Lord just as you did when you first called upon him to save you and make you holy because there is no other way to be made holy in the Lord. Paul says it this way in Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It is an act of surrender, striving after those two things, as the writer of Hebrews has said. So, how do we run the race with endurance? We dig deep into the resources of God. We love our neighbor as ourself and the Lord with all that we are. And then third, we embrace grace. Embrace grace. Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many have become defiled. Failing to obtain the grace of God means failing to trust in the God of grace. So it's not as if we're just out there kind of fishing around hoping to find it. There is one way to obtain the grace of God, and that is to trust in the God of grace. So if we miss the grace of God, it must mean that we misplaced our faith into something that couldn't give it. As a community of faith, and this is the emphasis here, we're to be attentive to one another, 
paying attention to how we're all running so that we might identify anyone among us who hasn't yet trusted in the grace of God. And do you think it's possible today that there are people among us that haven't yet trusted in Christ? I mean, they learn the religious kind of routine. They know Christianese. They can say the right things. But they're missing the grace of God. Here's a couple of descriptions. Graceless people, they can go through the motions, but their lives don't reflect the transformational power of grace. They really resemble the world far more than they would resemble someone who is following Christ. Now, I know all of us hopefully would have the thought, now let's not become judgmental. Let's not become legalistic. And that's, that's not what it's saying. It's just saying, let's go to Galatians 5. You have the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. When you walk, if you're in community, if you're doing life with somebody, and all you see are the works of the flesh, they're listed in Galatians 5, and you don't see the fruit of the Spirit, well, what should you conclude? Either they are not growing at all, like they've come to Christ and then it just stopped, or they haven't yet obtained the grace of God. And it's worth a conversation. I'm learning a lot about conversations right now. And they don't have to be like everything's at stake in this one singular moment. It means that I can enter into a conversation and I can just ask questions. Maybe I could start with, how are you doing? Are you okay? How are you dealing with life just in general? How is your relationship with God right now? Is it okay? You see what I'm saying? I mean, I can just invite conversation. And we can begin to explore together. Are you trying to work something out in your own power? Which is absolute futility. And wouldn't it be great if we discovered that and you found out you don't have to do that anymore? That you can just trust in Christ and follow hard after Him. By grace, through faith. Wouldn't that be a great conversation? Be great if we could have a lot more of those kinds of conversations. There's a very great danger to the church if we don't. He talks about a root of bitterness springing up. Now, most of us, when we hear that phrase, and we might actually misapply it to this passage, but we think about if someone offends you and you hold on to, the, to a grudge, right? You're unforgiving. That can come from a root of bitterness in you. Certainly, that is a biblical idea. It's just not taught in this passage. This is literally talking about a person in your midst, in the church, which is a spiritual entity, not a club, not an association, not just a bunch of great people that you like to be around. It is a spiritual entity, And someone who has not yet obtained the grace of God. In other words, they are uh, separated from God by sin. They've not yet been forgiven. 
that person, if it's just left unaddressed and they just continue on, they will spring up as a root of bitterness and they will cause trouble, division. They will defile the whole. The reputation of the church could be affected by that because they're not walking with God. They're just walking in their own flesh. And that never ends well. So again, this isn't like the the morality police. We're not following each other around, trying to catch each other slipping up. We're literally just saying, do you know the grace of God? And if you don't, I I want you to know it. And that's good for you. It's good for me. And it's good for us. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. Now, remember, think about the context. They're under great persecution, great hardship, which the writer has said, this is the discipline of the Lord that will refine you and and bring about the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Well, if someone doesn't know Christ, they can't experience any of that. And over time, they will bear the fruit of unfaith. And it will have some kind of effect. This is taken, I won't read it, but Deuteronomy 29, 18 and 19 describes this in Israel as they were making their way through the wilderness. It's a vivid picture and a sobering reality. I would put verse 15 under the umbrella of church discipline. And uh, periodically we get to mention this, and I'm thankful because most of us, when we hear the word church discipline, we think about getting kicked out of church, right? Like, if you get church discipline, you're gone. Well, that is, out of Matthew 18, that is the very last step of a process. A process which is totally devoted from start to finish to restoration, not excommunication. Excommunication is something that should grieve every one of us to no end. Because here's what excommunication is. That's basically saying to another person, you know what, we have come to you again and again and again and again pleading with you to turn back, to turn away from your own path Back to the Lord and his people and his word. And you have stiff-armed us again and again and again. So what we're doing is we're simply saying, you don't want to be here. Because if you did, you would change. So we're going to give you what you want out there. Go after the world. I would say to somebody, go after it with everything that you've got. Because here's what I know. You will never be satisfied. You will never be fulfilled. Your life will ultimately end up in a ditch. And that will be the grace of God because that might be the thing that will turn you back to him. Because that's what we want. That's what we want for each other. So church discipline is really all of us caring for one another and exercising this beautiful gift of grace with one another by speaking the truth in love. Stuart Weber 
defines church discipline this way. Every effort by any individual or group of individuals in the church to turn a straying believer back to righteous living. That's part of what we do for one another. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Good word. Keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. Great description there of what we do for one another. So we dig deep. We love well. We embrace grace, the reality of it for ourselves and for others in the body. And then lastly, we aim long. This, this final section, these two verses, highlight one of the greatest hindrances to running well. And you'll remember earlier in chapter 12, he said to put off all those things that trip us up, that weigh us down, right? So here is one of the greatest that we need to very persistently put off, and that is short-sightedness, short-sightedness. Philippians 3, 13 and 14, here's what Paul said. This will help us understand this passage. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Again, that sounds like exertion. That sounds like something that might be painful or unpleasant. He says, I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we do the same. We strain forward. We press on. We dig deep, love well, embrace grace. Why? Verse 16, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The writer of Hebrews is pointing us back, as he has countless times, to the Old Testament, Genesis 25. Remember, Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau. Esau was the firstborn. And for Israel to be firstborn, that came with great privilege and great responsibility. You were preeminent among all of your siblings if you were firstborn. You received a double portion of your inheritance. You were, you were the next step in the lineage. And if you think about Abraham, Isaac, should have been Esau, which would have meant he would have been in the lineage of Christ. That's what his birthright afforded him. But Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of stew, which was to say to God, Hey, I get that you've got this big grand design and you chose these people to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And I know you've you know, you got this Messiah that's coming and you know, great grandpa Abraham and Isaac. I know I'm next in line and all that. You know what? I don't really care about that. 
In fact, I'm so hungry right now, I'd, I'd actually take a bowl of stew over being in the lineage of Christ. So, that's, I'm good. So, he sells his birthright to Jacob. Jacob enters into the lineage of Christ. And Esau is lost. The interesting thing, though, is birthright and blessing aren't the same thing. You get blessing with your birthright. Blessing is a lot of maybe even the more, more physical uh, manifestations of, like if we think of blessing, that would have been associated with him. They, they do go together, but they're separate. So Jacob deceives his father Isaac and gets the birthright. With the birthright, he gets the blessing. So when Esau comes back to dad for his blessing, which that's really all he wanted anyway, it's gone. And if you go back and you read it, he is weeping uncontrollably. Dad, dad, don't you have a blessing for me? And he's saying, it's not mine to give. In the sense of like, I don't get to decide, oh, that was your brother Jacob and all that went down. And all that. Like, Esau, you sold your birthright. You gave it up. And you gave it up for a bowl of stew. And what's interesting is that moment, I'm not sure that's actually the problem. It's what that moment represented about Esau's heart. He didn't want God and all that God wanted for him. All he wanted was material blessing. He wanted immediate gratification, which I think is why sexual immorality is included here. I mean, we're not told that Esau was sexually immoral. He was later in that he married outside of Israel. But in the moment where he sells his birthright, there's nothing sexual about that except that it's him trading eternal blessing for immediate gratification. And isn't that a beautiful explanation for sexual immorality? Sex is this precious gift that God has given all of humanity. And it has very explicit purposes of procreation and pleasure. And yet, how many of us, myself included have thumbed our nose at God and said, hey, I know that you've got purposes, a design, a context where this gift is to be enjoyed, but I'm just going to kind of do my own thing. We trade the huge blessing of this gift of sexual intimacy for a bowl of stew, for a moment, and we miss out on great blessing as a result. It's honestly the sin of presumption. It's to presume upon the goodness of God. And it's to say, I really don't want you. I just want your gifts, your trinkets, your blessings. But I don't want to live in, in a, an intimate relationship with you. And it's short-sighted and it's a costly miscalculation. 
When Esau desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Honestly, he really wasn't repenting. He was just trying to figure out a way to buy God off so that he could get his blessing back. And that's not the heart that God wants for us. He wants us to have a heart that would come to him and say, you know what, God? I don't know what I'm going to get out of it in this life, but I want you. I just want you. And I, that will be enough for this life. And then I will have you and everything that comes with you, most of which I can't even comprehend. I will have all of that for all of eternity. That's the long game. That's aiming long and living in light of that reality. That will change the way you and I live. In the end, we want to say with Paul, this is a beautiful contrast to Esau and all that was described there, 2 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Paul says at the end of his life, and talk about painful, talk about unpleasant. Just read his biography as you read through the New Testament. Here's what he says. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Don't you want to say that at the end? Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And pay attention, not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That's you. Dig deep into the resources of God, not your own. Love well your neighbor and your God. Embrace grace, not only in your own life, but in this community of faith. And aim long so that you can finish like Paul. I want to ask you, as we always do, to uh, ask the question, so what? There may be some expression here of running with endurance that you need to apply today. It's just it's some manifestation of following hard, striving after God by grace through faith. But what is it for you? What, where do you need to make some adjustments? Where do you need to lift your drooping hands and your buckling knees and your straying feet? Where can you kind of pull that back in line with what God intends for you and experience the fruit of discipline, the peaceful fruit of righteousness? Prayerfully consider that for your so what today.